Well, today we're um, coming to the end of our sermon series uh, called Stranger Things in the Bible. And as you have probably picked up over the last few weeks, this this whole series is based on a bunch of questions that our teenagers had after going through the Hebrew scriptures for the better part of a year. And there were some doozies in there. Like last week we talked about Job and Satan and that whole scene. We looked at, uh, we've looked at Ehud, this guy that kills a king on the toilet. We're like asking questions like, why is this in the Bible? And what is this, what is this good for? And why is it so weird? And, and today, um, today we are looking at another interesting story. And basically the question that I received from an anonymous teenager in our church was, what's up with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? What's up indeed? If you don't know Elijah and the prophets of Baal and let me just give you a little overview. There's this book in the Bible called First Kings, and in the 18th chapter of that book, there's this story about Elijah, who's an Israelite prophet, and he challenges 450 prophets of another foreign god, a Canaanite god named Baal, to sort of a, a showdown on a mountaintop. And he says basically like, hey, I want you guys to, to build an altar with all of this wood and you put half of a bowl on there, and, um, but don't light it on fire like you normally would. If your God's real, like call down thunder from heaven and spoiler alert, Baal can't do it. And so then Elijah makes an altar and he puts his wood on there and then he puts his animal and just for extra effect, he puts water all over the wood so it's extra hard to light on fire and he prays to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of of heaven and earth, and, and it lights up on fire. And then Elijah tells the people, kill those dudes. So he kills all 450 of the prophets of Baal, and then it rains, and then the story's over. So yeah, indeed, what is up with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? We better pray. Lord, another interesting story um, in your scriptures that on the surface just seems so weird to us from our perspective. Um, But we're gonna take it seriously because it's in the scriptures that you've given to us. And I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say um, to us today. Uh, Help us, because as I mentioned, it is weird. Amen. All right. So a moment ago, I told you that this story that we're looking at today takes place in the 18th chapter of a book called 1 Kings, which means that we're 18 chapters into the middle of the book, and to understand the story in chapter 18, you kind of have to have some context. So for the first part of this thing, I'm just going to give us some context. And I guess the important place to start, which if you've been around Letter Streets a while, is a place I often start, is that I want to remind us what humans are for. Most creation myths and origin stories in the ancient Near East, that's where Israel was, ancient Israel, that's where they came up. Most of those stories involve the creations of humans, either by accidents, like like a god died and from its flesh, like people came up, and then the other gods are like, bummer, those guys are annoying, and let's enslave them. So that's one kind of creation myth genre. And then another one is like the gods were like, you know what, life's kind of hard. Let's create some beings to be our slaves so they can like feed us and, and you know, take care of us. So those are, those are the main kind of like creation myths in the ancient Near East in very basic terms. 
But the Jewish and Christian origin story in the, the scriptures in the, in the book of Genesis tells us that rather than a pantheon of gods who reluctantly create humans to meet their needs, the one true God, Yahweh, creates human beings because he loves and because he wanted to. Being himself, this Yahweh, is a community in himself. He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't have needs from the outside world. So Yahweh created human beings in his image, male and female, both in his image, exactly the same, equal. All women and men, not just the king or nobility or the powerful, all people were made in God's image. In every other ancient Near Eastern creation story or origin story, there's only one person made in God's image. And it happened to always be a man, and it happened to always be the king. Kind of convenience if you're the king. He's like, I want you to write up a story where it props me up. Almost immediately, the concept of humans sharing God's image was put to the test. There's just something about humans me included, probably you if you're honest, there's something about us, some, maybe it's an insecurity uh, that causes us to want to exert power over, over somebody else. Adam and Eve are seduced in the garden. They want to be independent from God. They want to check out life on their own, out from his uh, umbrella. They have two sons. One of those sons, that's 50% failure rate, right? Like kills the other son because he's jealous and that son has a family, it produces murderers and warlords and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so God decides, you know what, I need a new plan here. I'm going to work in and through a particular couple, this man, Abraham and Sarah. And they're going to become a people, the nation of Israel. And God is going to bless and teach them about his ways so that the whole world are going to look at this group of people named Israel. And they're going to say, wow, they get along they thrive, they do well in the world, they make beauty, and they worship that God. Well, that's different, like, let's check out that God. And, and that was God's plan to, like, bring people into relationship with him. It was to work in and through Israel. After Israel was formed out of the exodus and they entered into the promised land, what is now Israel-Palestine on a geographical map of today, they began to have kings. And these kings were to act as priests to the people. So Israelite kings were not supposed to just be warlord kings. They were supposed to be kings who led their people into faithfulness and following God, reading his scriptures, understanding his character, taking good care of one another. Their lives were to be so attractive that others would want to come to know God and in the process, what it means to be a healthy human being. That was the plan. And God strictly warned these kings that as they interacted with other nations and other religions, that they were not to take on the practices of those other nations and religions. And this resistance against uh, other gods and goddesses that were surrounding them is not because like jealousy, uh, like Yahweh had like a jealousy problem or didn't think he could stack up next to these other gods and goddesses. It wasn't even an issue of them being real because most of them were just like wood or stone statues that were propped up by mythology and rituals. No, God doesn't want us going after other gods because doing so leads towards dehumanizing thoughts and dehumanizing behaviors, such as, and these were common in the Canaanite world and surrounding nations, such as child sacrifice, 
and ritual self-harm, like part of worship was to sometimes cut yourself. Um, Ritual slavery and prostitution and destruction of human dignity. So in essence, we were designed to trust Yahweh for our life. Whether ancient gods and goddesses or materialism of the modern day, all of our alternatives are really just ways to trust someone or something other than Yahweh. And so the book of of Kings, this is where I'm leading now, the book of Kings tells these tales of various kings of Israel with their mostly poor track record of keeping true to Yahweh. And one king in particular uh, failed about as bad as, as any of the other kings, and his name was King Ahab. He was not only sympathetic to the religion of the Canaanites, his neighbors, but he married the daughter of a Canaanite king, and her name was Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of her. And she was a devout worshiper of Baal. And not only did Jezebel uh, make Baal worship popular in Israel, she actively sought to destroy the prophets of Yahweh. She tore down the centers of worship to Yahweh, and she made the worship of Baal, the central religion of Israel. So if you just heard what I said about God's plan for Israel to be the light to the nations, and now their sole God is Baal, you can see the problem there, right, from a biblical perspective. Now let's talk about Canaanite religion for a moment. Like all other ancient Near Eastern religions except Judaism, The Canaanites were polytheistic, meaning that they worshipped multiple gods and goddesses. Each of these supposed deities had a a special realm that they were in charge of. So their creator god, the kind of the high god, was named El. And Sophia's going to put a picture of El up here um, on the screen. Um, He is on a seat that's supposed to be a throne, not a toilet, but if you laugh, it's fine. Uh, and he's sort of got like a snake thing around him, which represents snakes in the ancient world sometimes represent uh, eternity or because, you know, they molt and they have new life, uh, this kind of thing. And his hand's sort of like this um, because he, he's supposed to have a scepter there, which would um, symbolize like authority over all things, but that's really old and the scepter disintegrated. So anyway, he's got, there's a hole in his hand if you could look down on it. So that's, that's L. You can also see him uh, in the figure of a bull, which represents power and uh, fertility. And so that's also a depiction of L. Um, and so L is the high god of the Canaanite pantheon. And then Sophia's gonna put kind of a simple family tree up. Here's his three main sons. So he's got Yom, uh, which is the sea and chaos god. Mot, which is the death god, and Baal, which is rain and fertility and fire, most likely lightning. Okay, so you with me so far? Get that diagram. This is Canaanite pantheon in your mind. Simple, simplified, very simplified. So the land of Canaan is, for the most part, an arid place. Doesn't get a lot of rain. And so rain is essential for survival. Um, And when Ahab, the king of Israel, married Jezebel, princess of the Sidonians, there was a mountain range that separated kind of where Israel was and Ahab's people and Jezebel and her Canaanite people. And that what was linked together, you could either consider it was separated by a mountain range or it was linked together by a mountain range, same same thing, and that was Mount Carmel. Here's a couple of photos of Mount Carmel. 
uh, in Israel. And uh, you can see how this is during the rainy season, how lush Mount Carmel is. And in the next photo, you can sort of get a picture of, uh, so it's, up, it's lush up high, but this is modern day, um, the modern day valley, and you can see it's irrigated farmland, but if that irrigation, modern day irrigation wasn't there, that would be dry um, without the rains. Mount Carmel is about 1,700 feet high, so not high by Pacific Northwest standards, but it's right next to the Mediterranean Sea. And when those clouds come in off the Mediterranean in uh, the spring and the winter, they hit that mountain, they drop their moisture, and then you have wadis that fill up with life-giving water. And they water the crops, and they water the fields that the animals eat for short periods of time. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Let's go back to the family tree of El and his three sons. The Canaanites believe that Baal, which that name Baal means master, that Baal mastered or destroyed his brother Yom, the chaos. So Baal is a hero to them because he calms chaos, he brings order, and he steals the water from the sea. And now what he does is in these rainy seasons, people believed that Baal would bring the rain, thus bringing fertility, and guess how rain comes in a storm, right from the sea, it comes with lightning and sometimes hail, and so all of those things are attributed to Baal. Let's have a picture of Baal up there just for fun. Uh, Here's a depiction, he's got some gold overlay there, and you can sort of see his right hand is up like this. Um, He would normally have a, a lightning bolt there, again, because these are like thousand, over a thousand years old, like it's dissolved now, but in, in like etchings on stone reliefs, you can see the Baal figure with a lightning bolt. So he's, that's, that's him. He's the, the one that they believe would bring the water. And the people observed that the rainy seasons were really short on Mount Carmel and the surrounding area, maybe two, two or three months a year. So as the story goes, and these are all on stone tablets, by the way, uh, the story goes that Baal's brother Mott would capture him every year and drag him down into the underworld. But every year when the people would worship enough and cut themselves enough and dance around enough, then Baal would escape and answer his people and bring the rain, and then Mott would bring him down again every year. So this, this is the Canaanite belief. What people would do to get his attention to call him out of the underworld are horrible acts of self-harm, human sacrifice, sexual injustice, and other forms of getting his attention. Let me just sum up so far, because you didn't know you were going to get this lesson, I know, when you walked in. From a biblical perspective, and from evidence in human history, the worship of Yahweh leads to life, and blessing, and freedom, education, hospitals, human equality but it requires obedience to God. It requires trusting him and following him. And from a biblical perspective and from evidence from human history, the worship of Baal leads to dehumanization of women, minorities, and children. It leads to the propping up of a royal figure and the diminishment of common people, but it did not require obedience It only required ceremonial acts, whether your heart was in it or not. So in essence, following Yahweh requires faith and trust. Following Baal made you feel in control because your religious acts supposedly coerced the gods to do your bidding. 
And human beings have a problem in that we love the illusion of control. And that's why Baal is so seductive to the people. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Yahweh confronts Ahab, the king, who's leading people towards worship of Baal, and he, he does this confrontation by sending his prophet Elijah to Ahab, and he says, I want you to tell Ahab that this has gone far enough, and I want you to tell him that I am going to dry up the rain. There's going to be a drought in the land, and so that's what happens. Um, now, this might seem really mean, like why would God do that? Like if you put a drought in the land, animals are gonna die, people are gonna suffer, possibly die. It's because from a biblical perspective, idolatry leads to death. And if Ahab is able to just go like freewheeling into um, bringing all of Israel into idolatry, then it's gonna make generations of Baal followers and generations of dehumanizing people. Creating a drought which may cause some hardship or even death was a way of getting their attention. But it's also more than that. Does anyone remember the story of the Exodus? And God's people were enslaved for over 400 years by the Pharaoh in Egypt. At one point, the Pharaoh even ordered the death of every male child of the Israelites to try and wipe out their bloodline. And this is sinister stuff. And you remember how Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and sent him to confront Pharaoh? Maybe you remember this story. Well, what happened when Pharaoh refused to let the people go? God sent crazy on him, right? Like, Moses, why don't you unleash the frogs now? Like, plagues of frogs and, and hail and really weird blood in the water, like weird stuff. Like, why don't you just like, God, why don't you just teleport them? Or why don't you do like normal plagues or whatever? Like, why frogs? That's so weird. It seems sort of random, but actually they weren't random at all. Each one of them was specifically designed to get Pharaoh's attention and to show that Yahweh was the true living God over and above the pantheon of Egypt. And here's what I mean. Egypt worshiped worshiped a goddess named Hekhet, the fertility goddess. And she's depicted as a woman, and guess what her head looked like? Big frog. And so God sends this plague of frogs to show like, actually Hekhet isn't, like she can't control any of this stuff. I'm in control. Uh, there, there's another god named Min, who is the, the god of, of rain and hail and fertility uh, in that sense of bringing crops. And so God brings the, the plague of hail uh, to show that men can't even control his own supposed domain, that Yahweh is in control of all of these things. And, and I'm, I hope this is making sense to you because in 1 Kings, Yahweh isn't sending a drought to hurt people, but to show that Baal, the god of rain and fertility, he has no reign over that land. He's not real, he's a fraud. So after Elijah declares news of the drought to Ahab, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, tries to have him killed, and so he escapes to the desert, and there, okay, remember Exodus again? They escape from Pharaoh, they go to the desert, now they're all hungry and starving, and God provides manna, like this magic bread stuff, and water from rocks, he provides, right? Well, Elijah now is escaping for his life. He runs out in the wilderness, and God sends like ravens to bring him stuff, and an angel's like cooking bread on a rock, and just like the Exodus. Okay, so we're seeing some similarities. Elijah escapes. Jezebel 
rounds up the prophets of Israel who are loyal to Yahweh and she executes them. And she leads with fear and she says, if you follow this Yahweh character, you're gonna die, you're gonna be oppressed. So Baal's your new master. Okay, finally, we've set the stage for the showdown now that actually occurs in the patches that we're talking about tonight. In the third year of the drought, which means that two full years had gone by, and now it's the beginning of the third year, which means Baal has had two cycles, two annual cycles to try and show himself real. God tells Elijah, all right, it's time. Go show yourself to Ahab. And Ahab sees Elijah come, and he says, is that you, you troubler? Ahab is so deluded that he thinks the, the cause of the drought is Elijah. Maybe it has something to do with your idolatry, but he's, he's dense right now. Um, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah said, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed Baal. Now summon the people from all over Israel, meet me on the top of Mount Carmel, and bring 450 prophets of Baal. Meet you at high noon or something like that, like a western. So Ahab sends word throughout all of Israel, and they assemble the prophets on Mount Carmel, and a bunch of representatives from Israel show up. And there they are at the top of the mountain that unites the Canaanite people, their land over here, and the Israelite land over there. Um, Jezebel comes uh, from the Israel, uh, you know, Jezebel's land and the Israelite land. It was the place where people often worshipped Baal, and it's a place where they used to worship Yahweh, but under Jezebel's watch and Ahab's watch, they crashed his altar down. So it's in ruin. And now a bunch of Israelites show up. God's chosen people who have begun to serve Baal, and then 450 prophets of Baal show up. And Elijah turns and he speaks to the people, his people, Israelite people. How long will you waver? Literally the word is hop between two opinions. How long will you hop or sit on the fence? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if it's Baal, follow him. And I think that this is the key line in the story. This is the question that keeps coming up in most of the narratives of Scripture. It's not only that that the Israelites had stopped claiming Yahweh as their God. In fact, they probably didn't stop. What they did was they added all of these other figures into their worship. But following Yahweh, trusting him, is incompatible with bowing down to the dehumanizing worship of Baal (coughs) or to any other false god or goddess. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Elijah is presenting a choice (coughs) before them And he's doing what prophets do. He's speaking the truth plainly to help encourage the leadership and the people back towards faithfulness. And the people aren't convinced yet. Apparently they're stuck. Because if they say, oh yeah, let's worship Yahweh again, like they know that their king's right there, and he might crush them or oppress them. And there on that mountain that was supposedly Baal's domain, Elijah 
instructs the 450 prophets to offer an animal sacrifice to Baal on his altar. They put the wood there. They put the animals there. And then he says, don't light it. I want you, if Baal's real, he can light it. He's the god of thunder, by the way. And so they call on his name, and nothing happens. And then they start dancing around, and nothing happens. And then they start cutting themselves and bleeding, and nothing happens. And Elijah sort of starts laughing at them, and he's like, well, is, you know, is he asleep? Does his brother Mott put him in a headlock and bring him down? And then he says, is he occupied, which is a biblical euphemism for relieving himself, you know, sort of like digging in, is he maybe he's going to the bathroom, maybe he can't, he can't help you right now. They're, they're going crazy, they're getting ecstatic, they're doing their thing, and finally he just says, enough, enough. And he calls the people a little bit closer. He says, now I'm gonna build an altar to Yahweh, and he uses 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he puts the wood, and he puts the animal, and then he orders them, Remember, they've been in a drought two years and more. He says, I want you to take four pitchers of water, these cisterns, I want you to pour it on the wood. And it pours out. I want you to do it two more times. So that's 12, 12 tribes, 12 cisterns of water all over the wood, all over the sacrifice, all over this moat that's around the altar that's supposed to hold the grain offering, all just full of water. Like, you couldn't light it even if you had a torch. Like, it's just wet. And then what does Elijah do? He, does he dance around and cut himself and do all kinds of weird sacrifices? No. He prays. He prays to Yahweh. And uh, I'll just quote it. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you are the Lord, that you are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire, literally the lightning of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. And all the people saw this and they fell prostrate, which is a way of saying they worshiped and they cried, the Lord. Anytime you see Lord in capital L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh, so Yahweh, he is God, Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none escape, and they did, and then they brought him down into the valley, and they killed them there. Killed them. So what is up? What is up with the story? I think the first part is pretty straightforward. Ahab, the king of Israel, had broken his vows He'd been tasked with leading God's people in faithfulness, but instead he led them astray. And like the Israelite slaves in Egypt, Ahab's Israel were enslaved to his policies and to dehumanizing effects of Baal worship. And in his mercy, God got their attention through the drought, and then by showing himself to be the true living God, he reveals Baal's impotence. Oh, and at the end of the chapter, God sends rain. So, that's pretty great. The second part is harder for us to swallow, isn't it? I mean, what's up with the execution of 450 prophets of Baal by Elijah's command? Uh, this ruffles my sensibilities and probably yours if you're from 21st century America. Like, it just, it's not what we do. Especially as church people, right? Because, like, we have the teachings of Jesus. 
Um, you know, what, what about forgiveness and second chances? And put on top of that, like, our American justice system, right? Like, um, what about, like, every criminal gets their day in court, and don't they get a defense attorney? And, you know, it's like, kind of like, don't, this doesn't seem fair or nice. And I guess the first step in approaching a text like this is not to read our culture back into the Hebrew Scriptures not only is this story well before the teachings of Jesus, but to put in a, mod- uh, a modern American justice system up against uh, most justice systems even today would be like comparing oranges and apples. Like, l- let me just say flat out, I re- like our justice system has its flaws. Like it is, it's really screwed up, especially uh, you know, if you have brown or black skin, it's a lot worse. It is a lot worse. But what I'm saying is that for as flawed as our system is, like consider places like Iran right now who are using like police suppression and even murder to silence peaceful protesters or women wanting to get education. Right? Like, like that's, that's the kind of justice system that exists in a lot of places right now. Um, and that wasn't anything as extreme as what these prophets of Baal stood for and were leading people to doing. Consider this as well, that in the ancient Near East, there were no courts or due process. Like, justice was meted out immediately and with little negotiation. It was kind of like who held the stick got to decide. But if we take a closer look at the text, we actually don't know that God wanted the prophets of Baal killed. Elijah makes that decision on his own. And the narrator actually doesn't give us a, a, a judgment for or against Elijah's actions. We do know that it got him in trouble because in chapter 19, immediately Jezebel wants to kill him again, and so he has to go hide in the desert. And I think maybe the point is this, that we are left wondering, recognizing that on the one hand, we wish Elijah hadn't killed them, right? At least I hope you wish that. Like, I don't want to see 450 people killed. We wish that there could have been redemption for those people. Maybe a change of heart or a conversion experience. And then on the other hand, we're left with the stark warning and reality that leading others to follow Baal or any false gods has dire consequences. Like, eventually that's going to catch up to you, and that was their day. So we have to hold those things in tension. Those are just realities. So, That's sort of my one-sermon attempt to cover a text that should be a series in itself. But that key phrase is still in play. How long will you sit the fence? How long will you hop back and forth between trusting God? And I'll say to us, how long will we hop back and forth between trusting God who's revealed in Jesus and trusting your own illusion of control? Just like Ahab and the Israelites, we all, I mean, we all hedge our bets. We may not cut ourselves and perform strange rituals around small bronze figurines, but like some of the stuff we do is pretty strange if you are an outsider or an alien looking at us. Like some of us trust in Jesus on the one hand, but then we give ourselves to workaholism at the peril of our family the risk of hypertension and poor mental health. And from an outsider's perspective, like if an alien were watching some of us live that life, that would seem like 
as odd as worshiping Baal. Some of us trust Jesus on the one hand, but are fearful of our futures, so we obsess about our finances, often having more than enough and more than most people in the world, and still we stay worried. And from an outsider's perspective, that seems opposed to reality. Some of us trust in Jesus on one hand, but give our lives in secret to addictions of drugs or alcohol or sexual addiction or gambling, and we do this at the peril of our families and our friends and our integrity. And from an outsider's perspective, I'm sure this seems incongruent with our faith in Jesus. And some of us trust Jesus, but choose our own comfort, our recreation, our entertainment, our self-satisfaction over commitment to his church, over commitment to knowing him, over commitment to his mission. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. He doesn't say no one can serve two masters except for certain people who are really self-disciplined and can do it well. It's just like it's impossible. Stop trying. You can't serve two masters. In that text that Jen read earlier from Matthew, um, Jesus uses the Aramaic word mammon to describe this false god. The dictionary meaning of mammon is property, but it came to mean whatever possession or pursuit we put our faith in besides Jesus. We can find mammon in our work, and our lust for security and control in wanting to be liked by others so bad that we'll choose that over our faithfulness. We can put our mammon in right doctrine or being seen as a great person. And Jesus is clear on all of it. You can't serve two masters. And I think that this Elijah passage and also Jesus reiterating basically the same principle, core principle, is like, this is a hard word for us. And I want you to know that it's also good news to us. Jesus wants us to be free of our slavery, whatever that slavery is to. The good news is that Jesus addresses that message of not being able to serve two masters to his disciples. You know what that means? He's speaking to people who are already part of the kingdom who are already in on what he's about, and he's not shocked that they still struggle with this. And that means that as you and I are here, Jesus is not shocked that we're still hopping back and forth, hedging our bets. He's not shocked, it doesn't surprise him. It's kind of a human thing. It's why he died for us, because we desperately, desperately need it. And he's so gracious to keep reaching out and to drawing us in and to revealing the truth. And on this Christ the King Sunday, I want to end the sermon and prepare us to come to the table by responding with a pledge of allegiance to our true King and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And Sophia's going to put those words up there. We pledge allegiance to Jesus. He alone is our Savior. He alone is our King.